0: so we opened the first clinic in my business plan i was going to open one of the new style clinic which was the cut down version of what i had and then i was going to run that for a year and see how that worked and then decide if it was franchisable but the reality was what it took us a long time to find a shop to go in to do that and when we did the day we opened we were offered another shop and one of my staff said i want the next one So literally, in my original business plan, it was going to take me four years to get to five clinics. And um, I think we got to something like 24 clinics in four and a half years.
1: You're listening to How I Scaled My Aesthetic Clinic the podcast where the most high-performing owners of aesthetic clinics and med spas from all over the world tell their stories and share the strategies and insights that allowed them to grow their business from often humble beginnings to soaring success. If you've ever tried to build a clinic, you'll know that it takes a lot more than just being a great doctor or practitioner, and it helps when you learn from the best in the industry. So join me, Miriam Shaviv, host, and director of content at Brainstorm Digital, as we explore how aesthetic clinic owners just like you have developed the mindset, skills, and experience to transform their businesses, and how you can do the same. Let's jump in. In 2007, Deb Farnworth-Wood packed up her life and her family and moved from the UK to Australia. She'd had a distinguished career, including opening the first drive-through pharmacy in England and becoming the first non-doctor to become a partner in a doctor's office in the UK. She intended to retire, but she was just 44. So perhaps it's not surprising that that didn't quite happen. A few years later, this serial entrepreneur was the proud owner of Australian Skin Clinics, a successful franchise brand, which she grew to 60 clinics and $70 million before selling. Nowadays, she owns and runs the Ultimate Skin and Body Clinic and is in the process of building a brand new business, including launching a new skincare range. We're delighted to have her on the podcast. Hi, Deb. Hi, Miriam. Deb, I want to start off um, going back to that moment, now more than a decade ago, when you just moved to Australia from England and you had intended to retire, um, but of course you ended up running this aesthetic empire. How did you spot that gap and that, that opportunity in the market?
0: Well, it was something I was already interested in. So in my UK business, which was a general practice, we had quite a variety of services and, and facilities there. So we had the pharmacy. We had a, what we used to call the H-Wing, which was the holistic centre. And it had things like hypnotherapy. And we had a fledgling aesthetic clinic in there. Um, but my business partners in the UK were not particularly interested in what they called silly medicine. They, you know, it wasn't real medicine. It was just looking good. And um, and then at that time, my husband decided he'd like to go and live in Australia. We actually got married here and he'd always wanted to live here. So um, we kind of investigated coming over and I really bought the clinic. Two reasons. Um, the main reason was I was already interested in it and this was a, a much better organized clinic than we'd started in the UK it was bigger we, we had more procedures we did everything from um, waxing and tinting right through to liposuction and threadless so it was quite a, a broad spectrum of treatments um, it meant I could get a visa very easily because you could buy yourself into a business into Australia so that made good sense it was semi it was medical semi-medical so that was what I'd been doing for 18 years so again there was the capabilities and the familiarities there um, and then I could just see that, you know, in a, way, in a way, although Australia seemed a little bit more advanced than the UK in terms of, you know, these laser and, and injectable treatments, there was still a long way to go. And I remembered from years ago, when I was sort of about 13, 14, my mum came to meet me from school one day and had been talking to another mum outside the gates who just had her hair cut and bleached and permed and... And I remember my mum saying, that woman's got more money than sense, spending all that money on herself. And now we all perm and bleach our hair. And um, and I thought one day having Botox and fillers will be just as common as getting your bleach and cut them. And so I could see that this was something that would grow at what pace I didn't know, but I was certain it would grow. And because before I was even in medical, I'd got a long career in retail and um, multi-outlet businesses, I figured that franchising would be a possibility. What I didn't realise was that I would do it all myself. I thought I would pay someone to develop the business and I would just oversee it. Um, But I just got completely hooked on the industry. I just loved what we did. And going to work wasn't like going to work. It was going and having a great deal of fun. And so that's what I did.
1: So first of all, you bought a pre-existing clinic. Um, obviously, many clinic owners uh, are doctors or nurses. They build theirs up from scratch, essentially. But you took a different approach. You, you purchased one. How difficult was that to come into, essentially, a business that somebody else um, had built up and then make it your own?
0: Um. It was probably harder than I expected because the the previous owners of the clinic was a, had got very good systems, very good disciplines in the staff and they did everything the way that he required it and they he wanted them to do it. The difference came in was I started looking at the types of equipment and procedures and treatments that we undertook and I looked at it with a much more commercial head. So, um, you know, there was a couple of lasers that were brought out maybe once or twice a month for the doctor to use. And then no no other staff member in the clinic had the right qualifications or ability to use that piece of equipment. So there was a lot of inefficiencies in there. And when I started to address the inefficiencies, that's probably when I, I met a little bit of kickback from some of the staff, but eventually they saw, you know, where I was heading with this. And, um, We did far too many things. So we had too many grades of staff, too many training requirements, too many different ways of booking things. Everything was much more complicated than it needed to be. And it certainly wasn't replicable in that format. So yeah, I think they saw me as someone who came in and changed a lot of things, but it was actually with an end goal in mind.
1: So you understood that you wanted to franchise this from the beginning? Oh, pretty
0: much. Yeah. I don't think I ever thought how big it gets. I don't think I had a, you know, a plan to get to 60 clinics. No, I think probably my plan was to get to 10. Um, it was, I think timing was exceptional. So we opened um, the first clinic. In my business plan, I was going to open one of the new style clinic, which was the cut down version of what I had. And then I was going to run that for a year and see how that worked and then decide if it was franchisable. But the reality was, it took us a long time to find a shop to go in to do that. And when we did, the day we opened, we were offered another shop and one of my staff said, I want the next one. So literally, in my original business plan, it was going to take me four years to get to five clinics. And um, I think we got to something like 24 clinics in four and a half years. Yeah.
1: I, I'm interested that you knew you wanted to franchise right from the beginning, um, because of course now the name of the book has completely slipped my mind. An extremely famous book that I probably have somewhere on my uh, on, on my on my shelf somewhere. Um, but of course, the the, the the famous thing is that if you want to build a business that works, you have to almost pretend that you want to franchise it, because that's how you build up good good, um, good systems and processes. Um, but you genuinely did want to franchise it, and therefore you, you, built, you managed to build a business that worked by taking that approach.
0: Yeah, it came back from really it was the marketing that made me think that. So um, I realised we were investing, <clears throat> investing so much money in marketing that the amount we were spending, albeit in a, in a small locality, would have supported more than one clinic. And so that was where it started from, was looking for economies of scale. Uh, consumables were expensive. Laser consumables were expensive. I knew that if I increased the volume of some of those items that we would get better discounts. I think it was like the fifth biggest Galderma account for our injectables in, um, in Australia. So even though we were only one clinic, the number of injectables we did was huge. Um, so I already had really good discounts on... Um, Fillers and anti-wrinkle, of course, but then I realised that we could extend that further, and, and indeed we did. So when you when you start buying even for five or six clinics, the economies of scale start to come home, and then when you get to 10-15 fifteen, they're even greater again. And you know, down the track, we ended up owning our own supply chain in some things, not in everything, but in some things.
1: So I think also something here is that you are very commercially minded, where, of course, many doctors who and who set up their own clinics um, and other medical professionals don't necessarily come from that background. Um, but you sound like you're very, very cost conscious and conscious of the, of the commercial implications of every move right from the beginning.
0: Yeah, so a lot of my background have been sort of in my in early days of my career, I used to work for Debenhams, a department store. And although they're not a franchise, it's multi- multiple units all doing the same thing. And part of my role was I worked in their um, accounting offices in Taunton. Um, and my job was to write the store procedure manuals and the instructions that made sure that everybody did the same thing. So I kind of, you know, once you've written those manuals, you already know the story. You might, you know, you might tweak the, the procedure a little bit. But in essence, you know, receiving stock is receiving stock and Balancing a till is balancing a till. So, you know, having been through that systemization, I was very systemized. It it was second nature, really. And um, the biggest thing I found and and I've always found, as you say, doctors are not necessarily commercial. And I, I suppose what drives them is not always money. It's usually the care factor and the looking after people. Um, the doctor I bought the original clinic of is called Dr Gross, and um, you know he 's still a good friend now. He was actually quite commercial, so he he actually did have systems in place um, but there was more we could do, so you know the way we bought we could be smarter, the way we managed our time could be better um, and so I looked at improving things like how we delivered a service because again, if you 're going to franchise you 've got to have that same treatment given by every different staff member in every different unit and with the same, a bit like a, Mac, a big max, the same all way. So it was that, those areas I concentrated on, which were a little different. And um, the very first thing I did when I first bought the clinic was I just looked completely at every service, every product, every cost. So right down to the Q-tip and the Vaseline for you know doing a, um, a lash tint. And then costed those services, costed the delivery of them. Again, in Australia, wages are expensive. So, you know, staff time is a big factor. And so costing them, were they profitable? And I found that many of them weren't. And many of the services were offered just so that the ladies of the Gold Coast could say they were going to have a leg wax, when really they were coming to have injectables and laser treatments and, you know, whatever else. So there was an element that we provided some services as a sort of a cloak for what was really going on in the clinic. And some of those had dropped because as time went on, you know, these services were now becoming more acceptable. The more we talked about it, the more acceptable they, they became.
1: So then why did you decide to franchise rather than a different model where you were more um, in, you know, w- where you essentially owned every single one out and ran every single one outright? Why was that
0: attractive to you? Um two things really. So the main one is is I think that nobody works as hard for other people as they work for themselves. And so when you've got a franchise, they've got skin in the game, they've got money invested, they're going to work hard because it's their return on their profit. The other thing is in the same way that doctors are not very commercial, then beauty therapists are not very commercial as well. And it was a real struggle to get clinic managers who had enough experience or enough commerciality or enough awareness to manage a clinic without being supervised every day and so this idea of having a franchisee who had commercial background who was genuine desire to make money um that to me was the i suppose the glue that held it all together what
1: was the key what is the key to making a franchise model
0: work so there's There's no one thing. It's an amalgamation of things, and you know I always say to potential franchisees, whether it's in this industry or anything else, you have to look at the big picture. So, what is the demand for services? What is the demographic area going to buy services? Where are you going to put this business? Is it in a shopping centre? Is it in a strip shop? What are your overheads for the building? Um, When you're actually looking at the staff, you know, is there the right staff skills in that area? That was one of the areas that was a big concern for me was the skill sets. Um, Because no one in that time came out of beauty school knowing how to operate a laser. So they'd come out with all the soft beauty skills, but not what I call high end aesthetic skills. So we actually had to set up our own RTO, which is a regional training organization, so that we could train those skills into our staff. So you have to look at that kind of collective picture. but fundamentally as long as you've got a business model that works and when I say works that you know it's a high demand um, product there's enough profit in the product to pay over that all the overheads the rents the staffing salaries and your franchise fees so you're obviously going to pay a royalty fee um, and then there has to be something left in the jar for the franchisee at the end of the day and so it's it's quite a big picture to pull together Um and I think in some sense the secret of our success was we were one of the first people to do that as a franchise in fact the number of people who told me you can't do this nobody's going to want injectables in a shopping center and yet you know very short time later you know there, you, now you can see four five six aesthetic clinics in a shopping center all doing injectables so um the market's really flooded now so um, whether so, so is people thought you couldn't do it back then, but do you now think
1: this is something that people couldn't do now? I, were you in this kind of magic moment where it just happened to work, or is this a model that people can still do now?
0: I think, I think people can still do it, but I think it's less profitable now than it was back then, and the competition is huge. And the shopping centres don't help, so they'll put four, five, six competitors in a very short space of distance and then wonder why they're all struggling. Um, I definitely think I got in at a a good moment in time where I could see that it was about to grow and hadn't yet grown. Um, I think, I don't know what the position's like in the UK because I'm not there, but here we have a sense that there's going to be a lot more amalgamations of bigger brands that, you know, they're going to merge, they're going to take each other over. And there's a lot of both franchise brands Um, company-owned brands and in small salons were struggling even before covid so you know we had the worst february on record i called around to everybody i knew to see how they were faring so this was before the virus hit and we've been suffering why why do you think that was why do you
1: think already and of course keeping in mind that february is your summer it's the end the tail end of your summer rather than your winter Um, yeah so what, 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 why do you think even before the virus hit, there was some kind of downturn?
0: So we've had, we've had a retail downturn in Australia for probably about nine months before that. And so it was deepening and deepening as, it, as we went through. February for us is is generally a quiet month. It's, um, we come back from our summer holidays, school holidays. Schools go back towards the end of February. Um, so normally there's a lot of people overseas on holiday or they're at home with the kids. So it's always quiet. But, you know, some of the salons I was talking to were reporting being 30, 40 percent down on on their norm for February. Um, so, so, and so, yes, I thought. Sorry.
1: So I would say COVID on top of that must is clearly a, v- a massive hit. So we will talk about the impact of COVID slightly later. Um, but just getting back to the the franchise thing. So. It, I, I would say if you're doing it all again, of course you are doing it all again because you still have your clinic, but would you do it the same way again nowadays?
0: Um, no, because there are so many clinics doing it the way I was doing it before. So um, I, I think you can, you know, there's only so many same, same type of businesses you can have. So you need a point of difference. You need something to be different um the world has changed significantly costs have been driven down over the last few years so discounting here is huge and i think what's happened is we've seen people in desperation certainly in the last sort of nine months money in you know last six months of last year and earlier this year um where clinics are discounted and just trying to get customers through the door the old the loss leader of a treatment isn't working anymore everything everybody wants everything discounted. And one of the biggest. I, 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 I think, I've heard
1: you talk about this—the—the—the uh, the, the, the race to the bottom in terms of pricing before. So how, how? Obviously, you don't want to be part of that race. How? How do you? How do you counter that? Essentially,
0: it's hard. I um actually don't discount much at all. Um, so in the one clinic that I've got is the original clinic that I bought. Um, when we became a franchise, we attracted a much younger demographic. So. We went from being that kind of doctor's rooms with high-end treatments to being more of a laser clinic and more general aesthetic. Um, Of course, we had injectables, but we didn't do the the threadless and the liposuctions and things we did before. And so my clientele changed and we attracted a younger uh, clientele who was more interested in general skin treatments and lots of laser treatments. And what we've done is we've reversed it. So I've gone back to having a few more treatments that we didn't have under the franchise brand. Um, Tried to attract back my clientele, which were typically an older demographic, a little bit more available spend. And we don't go for the volume of clients anymore. We go for quality size appointments. So we don't do 10-minute lasers anymore. And we have just tried to shift the gear back to being... Um, a little bit more for the discerning customer a bit more boutique
1: so you've essentially taken your, the, the, the the drive to the, obviously there's only a drive to the bottom in terms of prices if you allow that to happen because um, obviously there's always a, a higher end and a lower end of the market so you've kind of self-consciously pulled yourself out of that almost
0: yeah and that's not easy, you know, um, and because we changed name, clients thought we'd close down. So there was a, that we had to overcome this kind of story. And in fact, even last week, um, one of the staff was talking to because we're calling clients while we are shut down. But one of the clients said, oh. You know, I'm. I'm. I don't go there anymore now because you, you closed down and we. Said, and she said, no, we don't. We have he would we'll, we'll change the name and apparently he said, well, Deb's not there now. And they said, no, Deb is there. And he said, okay, okay I'll go then. So you got to kind of overcome this fight, and that's been 12 months, and we're still trying to overcome that. Okay, so I promise you we'll definitely, in a minute, we'll talk about your, your new clinic. Let's just finish talking
1: about the franchise model um, for a second, um, because there's still many people operating that model. Um, so one thing I want to know is how, uh, you talked about the, some of the keys to make it work. What about the people that you picked as, franchise, as franchisees? Was there, any, um, was there any secrets to who you chose and, um, and, and how you made those relationships work?
0: Well, I think every franchisor will tell you the fir- your first 12 franchisees are your dirty dozen because you're still trying to work out what sort of person makes your ideal franchisee. And I don't think we had a dirty dozen, but you know we did have a few p- poorer choices earlier on. <laughs> um, it's You actually want in a franchisee, you want someone who's system orientated and compliant, who will follow the rules and the procedures that you set down, especially when we're talking medical aesthetics and things like, you know, cosmetic injectables and prescription drugs. So you want someone who's going to follow the rules and follow the model and, and keep doing that. And um, I actually thought having doctors would be good for that because in hospital they do exactly that. But I actually, found doctors kept wanting to do things their way. And um, and to, and when they did, sometimes it was it was diluting the service or it was making them less profitable. Um, but in terms of yeah and in people are different so the point you're interviewing them they're so keen to join the franchise they'll tell you anything to get through the door and one of the things I used to say I've said to every single franchisee if I'm allowing you to put my clinic in that shopping center I am gauging my future revenue on how much you're going to drive that business because my revenue depends on fees from you So if I'm putting you in shopping center A, and I expect that center to turn over a million dollars a year, if you're not doing close to that target, I'm going to be kicking you to make sure that you get to that million dollars. And before they bought the business, they like that. They think, that's great. I've got a franchisee who cares, a franchisee who she's going to help me get there. That's fantastic. Um, And that's all pre-contracts, post-contracts. When you then talk to them and say, hold on a minute like then you suddenly the big bad wolf because you keep chasing them to make more money. So, but you know, for me, I cared deeply with those people who invested. I want them to make money. I want them to, to be successful. And that was one of the things that made me buzz and, um, and, and many were, many were. So it's, you know, it's, um it's an interesting thing. And I think I read somewhere that when you interview for staff, you're, you've only got a 10% chance of getting it right as an interview. And it's really not much different for a franchisee. So we try to put longer processes in place to try and gauge their real true level of enthusiasm.
1: Are there any lessons that obviously now you're working on a different model, but are there any, and, and obviously most people listening to this podcast um, are not franchise owners, but are there any lessons that you learned from running this massive business essentially and this franchise model Um, which essentially doctors and other clinic owners who run their own businesses can take from what, from what you learned?
0: Um, I think set your standards high. Um, Many franchise businesses start out accidentally and they don't have systems in place before they go and they build the systems on their way through. Um, I was kind of looking that when we first moved here, the GFC hit down, the global financial crisis hit down within a few months of moving here. So I spent that period of time getting all my systems in place before I launched the franchise. And I think that made a smoother transition and it was easier to roll out. So I think be prepared and get organised is kind of number one. And I think things that caught me by surprise were um how much more you could do as a collaborative team so for example the franchise um the franchisees and i used to meet very regularly and we would talk about the business and share ideas um but at the end of the day it's always the franchisors decision what gets accepted or not and um you know sometimes we had um franchisors franchisees rather who were new who didn't understand the system we're trying to bring in things without really knowing what we've got So having a group of franchisees that you can bounce ideas off that, that understand the system, understand where the profitability lies in the system and what drives revenue and, and help getting them to help you as well.
1: And I'm assuming that even in a single clinic, which is not franchised, making sure what you're essentially saying is that make sure that everyone who is part of the business has bought into what the business does and the way that the business works. And that would be true just for your, in a single clinic, for your staff as well.
0: Yeah. And just to give you a crazy random example of where it can go wrong. And one of the treatments that we did required numbing cream and the procedure we had in our original clinic was to, was to apply the numbing cream in room and then let the client sit in the waiting room while the numbing took effect. And while that was occurring, there was a 30 minute gap which the, the tech could then go on and do another treatment. And one of our franchisees decided very early on in the piece she didn't want the client sat in the waiting room with numbing cream on because she felt that wasn't nice um and but the thing was what we knew was it generated conversation everybody in the waiting room would say hey what are you having done and they would start talking and it was like a party in the waiting room and so she changed it so that that staff member so that staff member would stay in the room with a client for half an hour not treating anyone else and when we worked you know I think we worked at it with something like 190,000 dollars a year lost revenue from all (laughs) those half hours that that, you know so it's kind of little simple things have a bit of a knock-on effect
1: um, so last question before we go to break, um, about really about uh, about the staff. I know again from previous conversations that we've had um, that you've described how difficult it is um, for the market in general um, to, to keep staff and that one of the challenges of the industry is very high staff turnover, um, at least before COVID. Um, how, how do you what, what are your tactics to to, to keep the staff essentially and to and to slow down that turnover
0: so look I think um it is it's a real tricky one because the majority of both beauty therapists and nurses and the majority of our injectors are nurses so but you could count doctors in that too they all go into the type of work they do because they care about people and they want to touch them and put their hands on them and make them better whether it's you know look better, feel better. And they're not commercially orientated. And so what I find is it's, it's the thing that makes a business successful is the very thing that drives these staff away. And that is setting targets and, you know, financial expectations of revenue. Um, so generally it's, it's, It's not so much how we keep them, but it's how we recruit them. So I specifically look for staff who've got experience outside of the industry. They may have worked in Maccas or they may have worked in JJ Jeans or something while they're at college or whatever. Um, They've been a commercially driven organization before and they understand targets
1: and KPIs and things like that.
0: Exactly. And more than that, when they've had that experience, they've got good communication skills, they can talk to customers, they can shake hands and say hello and be confident. I would say probably 50% of the aestheticians that come out of beauty school can't look you in the eyes and have a conversation. And that's got worse with online learning. So, you know, they're learning at home in isolation and they, they're they not communicating they're not practicing they're not hearing sales speak they're not hearing people have, just have a meaningful articulate conversation about the weather or whatever but they're just not they're just unable to do that and, and then um, people so, are
1: stuck in a room with someone with and cream for half an hour having to make conversation with
0: them <laughs> yeah. and and also i think you know unless you've got a very Again, the majority of beauty therapists tend to be quite young because then they get married and have kids and leave leave the industry. And um, and then, you know, that's probably politically incorrect to say, but it is the reality of life. And so these young girls haven't got a lot to talk about to the older clients. And, you know, I think there's a combination of the, the older client will think well what do they know they're only young kids and of course they look younger than they are because of the industry we're in and then the um, the, the staff members sat there looking at this older mature lady thinking I've got nothing to say to her she's not going to listen to me so you know really it's about the recruitment of the right personalities that is the key to hanging on to those staff
1: fantastic um Deb we're going to take a quick break now once you come back from the break we're going to talk about a couple of things in particular first of all your marketing um, and then reopening a business, going back after running essentially a franchise business with 60 clinics, going back to running one. I want to know what that was like. So we're just gonna take a quick break and then we'll be back and talk about those two things.
2: Hey, it's Miriam here again. And during this break, I have a quick question for you. How easy are you finding it to market to your patients now that your clinic has reopened after lockdown? Lots of practice owners are struggling. They're not sure what to say to patients in this new normal. People are still recovering from the shock and the trauma of quarantine. Many have lost jobs and income. Sending the same old blunt promotions just doesn't feel appropriate anymore. You might be operating with a smaller team and a smaller marketing budget. And reopening your clinic is so much work, you don't even have the headspace to focus on marketing right now. If you can relate, let me introduce you to Inbox Express, Inbox Express, That's our library of marketing emails written specifically for aesthetic clinics and med spas just like yours. They're designed to make your marketing to your patient database as easy, as quick and as effective as possible. So you can get patients back through your doors again and again, even in these difficult times. All you need to do to get these emails working for your clinic or med spa is to fill in a few blanks, upload them to a marketing platform and hit send. You don't have to worry about messaging because it's all done for you. Each template takes an average of one to two minutes to customize, making your marketing more manageable during this pressured time. To find out more, visit inbox-express.com. That's inbox-express.com. I'll include the address in the show notes, so just take a quick look in the text under the podcast and you'll find it there. Now back to the show.
1: Okay, welcome back, everyone. Um, Deb, we want to talk now about your, I want to talk now about your marketing. You mentioned at the beginning about how much your first clinic was spending on marketing, that you realized that it, could, um, that it could sustain many more clinics. Um, and obviously, when you build up a business um, that big with 60 clinics, you have to have some very serious marketing in place. So what did you find was the marketing that worked best for you?
0: So i'd say in all honesty it changed over the years and um when we just had the one clinic we had to cover quite a broad number of uh, marketing channels but social media wasn't as crazy as it is now so we did have facebook and i think at the time we were one of a very small number of clinics that actually used facebook as a marketing tool and most of our advertising those days would have been print so we would have been in the local papers there was a a local magazine, which sadly doesn't exist anymore, but I had a column in a magazine in which I spoke about different treatments. Um, we actually had a large database of of clients; it was about thirteen thousand then, and um, and so we did a lot of re you know um, reworking the database, calling clients, emailing EDMs. Again, we were probably one of the few clinics doing EDMs as frequently as we were we were doing them. Um, we did SMS marketing frequently, probably twice a week we would do SMS marketing um, and so I was always obsessed with measuring the results and we also did radio in those days, towards the end radio used to work as well but we did radio, we would mix up the adverts and we would do specific adverts fall to action so that we could actually, from my office to the phone, so I'd know, you know the time slots were on the radio and I'd have this alarm on my computer to remind me to listen to the phone ringing to see if it rang off the hook to measure the
1: marketing. So, um, so and over the years,
0: presumably, the tools that you use changed a lot. But are there
1: any, yes. any principles that stayed constant? So you talked about the measurements. When you say you, 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 know, you tracked them closely, you were personally tracking them? How did that work?
0: In the early days, personally, yes, absolutely, but as we grew as a team, we had a quite a large marketing office towards um, you know once we'd hit about fifteen clinics, I think we had a marketing team of four and um, we had specialists in social media we had specialists in um, in a, a sort of journalist person who did all the PR and the, the journal stories um, we did less print and we did a lot more radio um, mainly because radio had broader coverage but again in different areas the results were quite different um, we always measured them it was a feature of our regular monthly board meeting was how much we'd spent on marketing um, by the end we had something like a close to two million dollar marketing budget so you know we're quite a significant spend um
1: that's working but i, I as, a, as a you know obviously we're marketers obviously we're email marketers Um, But one of the classic mistakes that we see clinics make the entire time is they launch a campaign and then that's it. They never look at it again. They just let it run. Um, Whereas of course, tracking and optimization to me is the beauty of online marketing. It's the fact that you can do that. Um, You know, you can always make something better, but for that you have to monitor and measure and keep a close eye on it. So why do you think that clinics, um undoubtedly are just not that good at that
0: i think it's about time so when you're you know when you're a sole clinic owner you're everything you're a bookkeeper you're the buyer you're the <laughs> the hr person the marketing person and i think it's about time and um and also some areas of marketing are hard to measure so it's, it's quite difficult to. and i think what are, the, one thing, what are the key things you think that should be measured when it comes the marketing um, yes yeah, so when it comes to marketing i, um, I, I split it two ways but the way now the way I look at it I split it two ways so it's marketing and remarketing so i have a always have an expectation that we want to attract a certain number of new clients a month because as much as we want keep business and we want them to keep coming back, the Gold Coast is very transient. People leave here frequently. You know, it's a very transient place. So I always will say we want about 20% new clients a month. We never really We never really get to 20 but probably 15% new clients a month. Um, and so there's, that's a specific marketing spend aimed at driving those through the door. And we count those, so we can count those easily. When you're looking at remarketing, then... As a different spend and that's whether you know whether we're drilling down into our database or whether we're doing things like adwords that are um uh, repeat marketing advert, adwords and again numbers of people who come in we have all our online leads come into hubspot and then we so we can see how many leads we've got in a month and we can follow them up and we can make notes in there um, and most clinics don't do that, so I'm really aware that that's an area where, unless you've got someone who's got marketing experience, they don't think to do that. They, you know, it, it's not a technique that would necessarily be something in their skill set.
1: Yeah, I, I, I find that when when we start working with clinics, they have things set up, but nobody is really nobody is really tracking it. And and I think technology is a barrier as well. By the way, I think that very often understanding how to measure. Um, you know, they, they don't have proper dashboards and that, you know, they, they, they don't really know they want to measure it, but they don't really know how to. Um, so do you have any what, what technology do you use to um to help you understand what's really going on with your marketing?
0: Yeah, so um during the, so during my days with ASC, we actually paid a software developer to improve their system to meet our needs. So um, and I'm actually not on that system anymore because that went with the company. But um, the things that I look for, I have dashboards that tell me how many clients, how many rebooks I can identify, staff sales by hour, hourly productivity, by average sale. Um, I have uh, with dashboards that tell us how many new clients we've got, um, average spend by age, by um, sex, by treatment, you know. Well, so what's, it's
1: what's striking here is how deep you're going, right? That very often um when when clinics, like all businesses, like it's really no different to any other business, I think, um, do start to measure, they're measuring at a very surface level, right? How much are we spending? What are we seeing at the other end? But actually you are seriously deep diving into every staff member, what's their productivity, what are they selling? Um, you're really going into numbers in a very you really know your numbers essentially and that's that goes yeah. back to what we talked about at the beginning about being able to be commercially minded and profitable and you can't do that without without really understanding the numbers in a very deep way
0: yeah that's exactly right and I think um you know to give you an example You know, laser is one of the biggest um, requested treatments. So laser hair removal, laser pigmentation, but hair removal by far the most in volume. But the prices have been driven down so dramatically that you know, it's really hard to make profit out of laser. So you could look at it till the end of the day and say, "Hey, I had a good day, I seven thousand dollars." But if that was seven thousand dollars of laser treatment, I'd be pulling my hair out and closing the door and putting a soul sign up because you know you just no longer can make money that way. And in the early days, we offered laser to attract the clients, and then once we got the client, we could introduce them to all these other things that we do. But again gung-ho people in the industry have then started to discount all of those too so and it's it's all incremental so any new clinic that started out last year a year down the track they forget to check those numbers again and they forget to look at their marketing costs again and so for me I've built it into a square we look at it every week not even every month so at the end of every week. Corporate is
1: getting monthly management accounts where they are deep diving into the figures. Smaller businesses, again, not just in aesthetics, aren't necessarily doing that. And therefore, they just, they, they just don't have the ability to correct course in the same way. But there's nothing stopping anyone doing that, even if you're smaller.
0: No, exactly. And it's, it's just down to having the software and having the understanding and knowledge of it.
1: So Deb, let's stop talking about marketing for a second and go back to a moment in time. Um, You sold up your your franchise business and then you decided to go open up your very first clinic again. You went back to the same clinic where it all began Um, Mm -hmm. and you you bought that one again or you still owned it? Did you keep it? Still owned it. Still owned it. So you kept that one. Um, What was it like to go back after owning such a massive business to then handling one
0: clinic um in a way it was a, it was kind of a initially it was a novelty and it was an enjoyable relief like novelty it was um go back to the beginning i realized a few years into franchising that i missed the interaction with clients that i had because i don't treat i'm not a beauty therapist so the only interaction i've would had with my clients would have been generally chatting to them in, in the reception, in the waiting area at the desk. And I'd uh, probably about three or four years into franchising, I realised I really missed that. So I was quite happy to go back and do that for a while. And um, I'd sort of made a pact with myself. I already knew I wouldn't retire again because I didn't manage that the first time, so I'd, that wasn't going to work. And so I just took the time to, to be around. Like you were oh, so give yourself another chance. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um so I, yeah, so so it was actually really good fun, and the best part was we we had to debrand the clinic to make it look really different, which was new forms, new shop fit, um get rid of all the signage, everything from scratch, so there was a lot of work in that, and that was actually really good fun to do, and I was lucky that um two former staff of um the big business had come back with me too so one was the marketing person who helped me start in the beginning so she was back with me and then one was my assistant so we had a really good time we got new equipment we got new procedures new treatments and um, and that was really good fun And um, but we also um, with Australian Skin Clinics we developed a skincare range as well and I had to lose that from my shelves too so that was when I decided to and develop another skincare range, and so that was that was fab- fabulous. That was really fun, and, and second kind of time around, you're, around right now. You're, you're, you're developing the skincare range now. Is that right? Yeah, it's actually fully developed now. We've got um, eighteen SKUs, and so far it's only been in the one clinic, but it's about to launch to a wider community as soon as we're over lockdown, I guess. And
1: why, uh, yeah, so that's why,
0: why. Why was that so important for you to do? um i think the i think the reason i wanted my own skincare range was because i it seemed to me that a lot of skincare ranges around ticked some boxes but not all the boxes and i wanted to have a different take so lots of skincare ranges are based on either being highly glycolic or highly salicylic or you know ahas or natural or organic and i kind of wanted to um bring together A unique range that was very specific to specific treatments and so that's what we've done and we're largely organic not wholly but largely we've got a lot of natural in there some of our skincare is um, more natural than others some of it's highly cosmeceutical and then you can't really claim that that's natural so we've got some really good actives in there Um, we've tried to address all the main skin concerns that we see day by day and it's unique to us and uh, that was kind of what I wanted to do so I assume that
1: again um now you're now you are essentially you've gone from being the big fish in the sea to being a much smaller fish in the sea so I assume that differentiation is now um something that you really have to think about
0: yeah absolutely and I think um I never I never aspired to be the big fish that was never in my makeup what what I aspired to be was good at what I did and I, I think I've that reflects my whole career and so i actually really enjoy startup businesses that's i've done many many startups now so this is i think it's my ninth and so um it just met my personal philosophy of ethics of what i wanted to do it made me feel good and i am good at what i do whatever i set my mind to i tend to be quite good at so i've i really enjoyed that and um, i'm actually mid acquisition i can't talk about that but um mid an acquisition and then that's going to change the future again. Maybe, maybe you'll have me back to talk about that later, <laughs> but, um, yeah. Do, you have, and I also,
1: do, do Do you have plans essentially? How, how big do you want to get this time?
0: I don't want to franchise again. So, um, and I, I don't want aesthetic clinics again, so it's not quite the same. It's different. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely, I have a bit of a rule that every business I grow has to be better than the last one. I say better, not bigger, better. And so that's my mission is to do this one more better than the last one, if that's not a word, but much better than the last one.
1: So how what, what what are you doing differently and better in this, this time
0: around? Mm, um, Without giving away too many secrets. <laughs> it's quite hard to talk about, really. Um, I think... I think... I very, I care very much about the environment and I've always, you know, I've always wanted, I've always wanted products that were environmentally friendly, cultivate all of that. And it's quite hard to achieve in, in aesthetics as a whole. And so I think what I've done is tapped into like the hearts and minds of people who think like I do, that we're killing our planet. We have to stop. So um, for my skincare, the packaging is very important that it's biodegradable and recyclable. So, yeah, so I think on that side, Um, I, I also know, um, I've got lots of business strategies in mind that will help other people grow businesses and that's going to be part of the, the opportunity as well. Yeah. And it's difficult to say much more without giving it away. Okay. We
1: get the message. I think it's a hold the, hold the space kind of message. It um, kind of is. Okay. Then we're going to take, take one final break, and then when we come back, we're going to talk about the elephant in the room, which is obviously COVID-19, and I want to hear your perspective about how that is going to impact the way that clinics work um, and the whole industry in general. Um, so we'll just make a quick break, and then we're going to be back. OK, thank
0: you.
1: OK, everyone, welcome back. Um, Deb, there's the elephant in the room, uh, which is COVID-19. As we are recording this, um, I, myself here in London, we're in lockdown. Um, across Australia, clinics are closed, and in America as well. Um, so what, what do you think? First of all, how, how are you coping under, under, under current circumstances um, with the clinic um, and COVID-19 in general?
0: Um so, yes, as you said, the, the clinic is closed. I actually took the decision to close the clinic before the lockdown came because I'm from a health background and I thought that was the wise thing to do. So, um, in terms of coping, my staff are obviously disappointed we're closed and it's not great for them, but they're positive and they they understand it will open and they know it will open again and I think When they talk to their colleagues, they know there's a lot of clinics that may not be opening out there again. So I think they feel that we're quite fortunate. What I did was, I, um, the very, very first week um, of shutdown, we had staff meetings by Zoom. Um, We set priorities, the things that we needed to do. And I actually managed to get girls who normally just treat and talk to clients to do work for me. I've had them writing blogs. I've had them writing hints and tips, um, recording videos, um, really getting into it. One or two did it more readily than others, but they're all madly doing it now. And so that's, that's been really great because it's,
1: yeah,
0: build the marketing collateral, but also build a bit more knowledge in them. Um, when we went into the global financial crisis back in, uh, In the 2007, um, I sat down with my staff then and said, our mission to get through this is to survive, but whatever it costs, this this business has to still be here at the end. So I had pretty much the same conversation with the girls um, after we closed for COVID, and I think they got it. And um, we've been in touch every day. We we um, the clinic manager speaks to them all every day, and I speak to them once a week. And uh, yeah, building collateral. They've done lots of training, so I've selected training. We had one-to-ones with the staff and identified areas of weakness and asked them to go away and do that. I bought an online course for them all to do so they could do that from the comfort of their home while they're bored. And, um, and they've all been watched in lots of, I mean, there's been so much free training and webinars on the, on the internet, it's fantastic. They've done so much, it's been good. Um, surprisingly the skin factories still open. So the skincare factories so we're considered an essential service because it's toiletries and we have soaps and things as well. And so we've done a bit of a pivot with there. We've been marketing our body washes and soaps and things and that's been really busy. So it's for yeah, me it's been kind of the
1: skincare range comes in useful as well because you can actually sell sell that online at the moment. That's exactly right.
0: So we've just pivoted that business a little bit.
1: And what, what do you think is going to be the impact long term on the industry? Obviously at some point, everyone will reopen in some fashion or other. Um, how do you think the industry as a
0: whole will change? Um, look, I think, um, I think right now there's a lot of people are a little, are in a bit of denial about what's going to happen at the end of it. And I I genuinely believe a lot of clinics will close and, um, I know from speaking to colleagues and speaking to other clinic owners, there's a lot of people telling me that they're not going to reopen and that they're using it. this as a a way to get out of their leases and a, out of their commitments um, because it they've been experiencing. They were, they were struggling anyway. Exactly. They were the signs of the
1: downturn. So they're taking this as a, a, a way to get out elegantly.
0: Exactly. And... And that's possibly not too bad for the industry either. That will help stop downward spiraling prices and that will, you know, make people realise that actually they need to in fact one thing things I've been encouraging everybody is to visit your margins. Now you've got time. Sit down and look at your margins. How much you're giving away, how many freebies you've been doing. And um, so I think there will be a fallout and I think you know, every cloud has a silver lining and, you know, there's really terrible and sad for those people who do fall out. But for those that remain, there will be um, more staff available. So we'll be able to um, hopefully secure the more skilled of the staff and not take the less skilled because we're desperate to employ someone. Um, I think all all the clinics that I know, they've all been going through this period of re-education and upskilling and, and going through... Um, their are training again, so we've got people who are now freshly invigorated and reminded themselves of all the things they've forgotten. So hopefully, the standards of service and performance in the clinics will will improve. And um, but I think we'll also see some of those p- clinics that close or salons that close, people going back to home working again. So that happens at the end of the GFC. People were going back home to open their own home salons again and work on their own. And I see, I think we'll see that not necessarily in the higher end aesthetics but certainly in general beauty
1: so just to bring things full circle um i'm absolutely certain that when the clinics do reopen everything you were talking about at the beginning about being commercially minded is really what's going to count
0: absolutely absolutely and then i think in the way we practice that's going to change so we're currently um, installing screens in the front of the desk so that we've got you know a bit of a barrier, which goes against everything in my belief system about good customer service. But hygiene is now the number one king. Um, we'd already put in place very early on when the um, when they were talk was talk about this virus. We, within a couple of days, put in high sterilisation procedures. We every hour the clinic was gone through. We sterilised every door handle. Um, all the all the chairs are wiped down with um, antiseptic between clients and things, and I think that's going to have to continue. Australia's not been hit anything like as badly as the UK, um, but still people are concerned. Of course, naturally. Um, well,
1: Deb, I look forward to hearing about whatever it is that you have planned in the future <laughs> and the future developments of your of your of your business. If people want to contact you, how can they get in touch?
0: Um, so if you want to contact me, I'm on Facebook and um, Instagram. It's probably the easiest way to find me. And my handle is just Deb Farnworthwood.
1: Fantastic. Deb, thank you so much for being a guest on How I Scaled My Aesthetic Clinic today. Um, and again, we look forward to hearing about your future um, your future entrepreneurship um, and, and, uh, and adventures. Thank you very much. And for everyone else, we'll see you on the next episode of How I Scaled My Aesthetic Clinic.